Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. All right, welcome to This Week in Health IT. It's Newsday today. Apple had a worldwide developer conference, and we will talk about that. A forecast that says care is moving out of the hospital over the next 10 years. And so we will discuss that as well with Eli Tarlow, who is our guest today. My name is Bill Russell. I'm a former CIO for 16 Hospital System and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Special thanks to our sponsor today, Sirius Healthcare. And we really appreciate them. They've been investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. And we are so thankful that they are a part of our mission. If you want to be a part of our mission as well and become a show sponsor, send an email to partner at thisweekinhealthit.com. All right, quick note before we get to Eli, and Eli is patiently waiting. Check out our latest article on the changing role of the CIO. It's out on our website, thisweekhealth.com. It just went out last week. It's a great piece highlighting interviews from B.J. Moore, Ed Marks, William Walters, Teresa Springman, Craig Richardville, among others. The role is changing and check out how right from those who are living it. All right. Today, we're joined by Eli Tarlow, a recovering CIO and a client advisor for Sirius Healthcare. Eli, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me again. It's always a a great pleasure when we get a chance to, to chat. So you are a recovering CIO. So I have Drex on who, who coined the term recovering CIO. And so you were, how long were you a CIO? Yeah, I think it was like 12 steps. I think I just finished. I have my, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was, before I joined Sirius, I was a CIO of a hospital in, in Brooklyn, Brookdale Hospital there for a couple of years. Before that, a CIO at Bellevue Hospital. And I'm sure people have heard famous Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan, Metropolitan Hospitals. I've been a CIO for hospitals for many years, been in the, in the healthcare IT leadership part of the, just a healthcare IT leader since 2001, before that in other sectors and other industries. So. Bellevue has, a, has an interesting history. When it was founded, it was essentially free care to the, to the community. Yeah, a couple of, uh, couple of, so I was there for a little over five years as CIO. A couple of quick notes since you brought it up. Number one is Bellevue has been around since before we were actually a country. Bellevue has been around for 290 years, I believe, give or take. So before we actually existed as United States, they're the longest running hospital. There was only a hundred days in all that time that they weren't in business. And that was right after Hurricane Sandy when I was actually employed there. And that was the only gap in their ability to provide care. An incredible organization, incredible hospital, part of the overall New York City health and hospital system. Yeah. Hurricane Sandy swamped the parts of New York were just completely swamped. So that impacted Bellevue pretty significantly. Yeah, we, are, we began with shelter in place. What I learned during that time was just a remarkable experience. What I learned was that you don't really have the option as a hospital organization to just make decisions on whether you're going to empty out your hospital when it is a, when it is a situation that's arising. You have to actually, patients have to go other places. And because of where we were on the water table, we were advised um, to do shelter in place. The team did a remarkable job just making sure patients stayed cared for. And what most people don't know, unless they really read up on on the situation there is, and Bill, you and I have talked about this, you're only as strong as your weakest link. It wasn't the medical staff. It wasn't anything other than the fact that we didn't have potable water. So we had emergency generators running, we had patients taken care of, but people couldn't actually functionally use the facilities. 
And sometimes you really learn about how important housekeeping is and how important the engineering team is. And essentially that's what led to the to the discharge and the quick discharge of, I shouldn't say discharge, but transition of care to other hospitals in the area. So 500 plus patients, all evacuated from the hospital, no vertical transportation, 20 plus stories, all down steps. So a waiting parade of ambulances and every patient not only survived, but had a good outcome. At the last serious healthcare to healthcare event, I was talking to some people that were CIO and, and CTO at one of the other hospitals in New York. And they tell of harrowing stories of just the first couple of floors loaded with water. And they got everybody, everybody had to leave their hospital. They had no ability to really provide care because critical <laughs> at that point, this is how we used to think. We put that data center in a place that it was the least expensive real estate in the place, which was the basement. And who knew that, that the Hudson River could come up that high? And uh, yeah. We were fortunate and our data centers were elevated. And I think it was the fifth and sixth floors. The problem was that our the, the pumps for the emergency generator were in the basement. And so when water breached the walls, the pumps were dead. Whatever the fuel was left in the generator was all we had left. It was a couple hours of life safety basically left. And we actually formed what they nicknamed the Bellevue Bucket Brigade, where we had people wrapped around the staircases to the generator, handing buckets of fuel to fill it up. And I know we wanted to talk about other news, but just the last thing I'll say is they, they say you learn about the you learn about the loyalty of your staff in the, in, in those times of crisis. Either they either run towards you or they run away from you. And we wouldn't we didn't leave for a week. And you can imagine that was without showers. And I was just hoping that they would be less loyal and start running away from me and not showering <laughs> for five days. But it's a great team, super proud. It's a time in my life I'll never forget. Yeah, I, I can imagine. And we could talk about disaster recovery stories all day because they're they're, they're pretty amazing. They're pretty amazing how people do step up. The camaraderie that's developed during those times are pretty amazing. But just the stories, it's you sit there and you make the best plan you possibly can. And then it's that little, whatever it is, that one little thing that you're like, oh gosh, that's a lot more important than we thought it was. And it's in the wrong place. And it's going to bring all the best laid plans on all the large systems and whatnot. It can bring it down. You really have to think through every aspect because a, a disaster just it doesn't it doesn't discern it just does what it does yeah there's an overused phrase people process and technology <clears throat> everything will fail at some point i shouldn't say that things are likely to fail and <clears throat> if you have good people you will succeed and if you don't doesn't matter how strong your technology or processes are it all comes down to the people yeah and we're going to talk about people today because people keeps coming up i'll tell you this is let's let's start it off with this this is out of the blue but I'll go over here to LinkedIn, and I just commented on this a couple seconds ago, so it's pretty fresh. But Judy Kirby, who we all know, uh, Kirby Kirby and Associates, Kirby Partners, yeah, Kirby Partners. Thank you. Does recruiting in the healthcare space? She posted a, a a poll on LinkedIn, and she said, "What's your take? People opting not to return to the office be perceived as less engaged or not?" And then she has four answers: Yes, definitely. It depends on the person. No, not at all. It's too early to say. And I was reading that question. And I thought I had the answer that I want to give. And then I had the answer that I think is going to happen. And there are two different answers. Do I think that people who choose to remain fully remote will be perceived as less engaged? I think what's actually going to happen is, yes, they're going to be perceived as less engaged. They're not going to be there for the hall hallway conversations. They're not going to be there for things. But what do I hope happens? I hope that we change the culture 
to adapt to having people be included in some way if they choose to be remote, because there's very good reasons to be remote. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. So I I thought a lot about this when I was a CIO was it was all work from the office. I wore a suit and tie, including Fridays, right? When there was no no dress down, you never knew if you were going to have an executive meeting there. And now working for Sirius, it's entirely remote. I haven't seen our headquarters yet. And really, when I think about this, it's uh, the one word that comes to mind is balance. There's nothing in this world, I believe, that is good if taken to an extreme. People talk about whether working from home is great or not great. I think it's applicable in different areas. I think there are certain things that you cannot do um, as well when you're remote. I think there's things that you'll do better when you're remote. I think someone who needs to be in front of clients and selling, right? There's no value in them sitting in an office. They're wasting their, their time and they should be out in, in the field. Someone who needs to have bedside manner and really there's, a, there's a, that personal touch. You can argue that being distant or being remote is at a disadvantage. I think it, I, I, I think overall, we've been really heavy on being in person more than we needed to be being on site. I think what one of the things that COVID did, forcing people to work remote, is it, it highlighted a reality that we were too much to an extreme about. There was almost like the default was you work on site and there's an exception basis if you wanted to work remote. I do think as far as being engaged, and this is talking to many of my, <clears throat> excuse me, many of my colleagues, I think really it highlights a person's engagement when they're remote. I don't think it changes their engagement. I think there are people that have been engaged and they are even more so, in, or at least attempting to be engaged when they're remote because they, they don't want to lose what they have if they like to work remote. And then frankly, there are people that may not have been as engaged at work and now they're out of sight, out of mind, and maybe they're less engaged being remote. But I don't think it's a peanut butter spread or, or one answer fits all. Well, let me give you a different one. Again, it is social. I happen to be active on social media this morning for preparing for the show and preparing uh, a lot of time I'll scan things. And I saw this post and who do you think has the advantage here? And it's from Derek A. Derek doesn't have his last name on here. He's an information security manager at a healthcare or hospital. And he said, we've mired our defenders down with administrative nonsense. Imagine a police department that put cops on the streets for just 23 minutes per shift in a city of 20,000 or more. And then he has this list. He has a picture. And he said, you know, what the attackers, uh, cybersecurity again, right? So what the attackers are doing right now. Their priorities are, number one, reach the network. Number two, monetize. He goes, what the defenders will do today. In other words, what him and his department will do today. He said, number one, four hours of meetings. Number two, status updates. Number three, add notes and tickets. Number four, timesheets. Number five, HR mandated training. Number six, close tickets for false positive. Number seven, update slide decks. Number eight, update policies. Number nine, 23 minutes in defense work. And then he has in a circle, he says, who, who will win? And I, I say all that to say it's comical, it's funny. And the reason it's comical and funny to me is because I lived it. We have a meeting culture. We have a meeting and PowerPoint culture. Is there, is there a way to get beyond this that we are actually spending more time making the lives of clinicians better and more time making the lives of, of patients better and more times defending? And I know that those are kind of Pollyanna kind of comments because those meetings and a lot of those meetings, we do that work. But is there a way to get out of this meeting centric culture? Yeah, first of all, I think the biggest disservice, I can't say a brand name, but let's just say maybe an email calendaring program that almost all of us use. I think the biggest disservice they ever did was that if you notice out of the box, the default meeting time is one hour. You have to actually go in and change it to be 15 minutes or a half hour. What if default meeting time was a half hour? 
And you, how many people do you think would actually go in and make that a full hour? I think we just say, okay, let's just make it an hour. And then what do we say? Oh, good news, guys. We gave you 15 minutes free back, right? In your day, if we end it 45 minutes, we, we all get excited. We have 15 minutes left. And, and that just prepares us for the next hour long meeting or 45 minutes if we get lucky. So I think number one, to your point, Bill, yeah, where communication is important. And again, this comes back to balance. So we want to make sure everybody knows everything. In healthcare, we we, we tend to over-communicate because under-communicating can actually, God forbid, lead to a bad outcome for a patient. So we want to really make sure. We do timeouts before surgical procedures. We, we have to over-communicate to make sure every single I is dotted. And so that healthcare as a whole, we have to, and we still have to remain focused on communication. So we want to make sure everybody's in the loop. Also, you mentioned about policies, right? Again, you know, look at policies. We're measured by if we have a policy and if we follow the policy. We know when joint commission comes in, they don't, they less question whether your policy was correct. They do, obviously, but they more focus on does a policy exist? Is it a, a systematic failure or is it an individual failure? So right away, we jump to creating effective policies. And I think it just comes back to what I said earlier. It's about balance. We have to communicate. We, don't, we shouldn't over-communicate. We have to have policies. We shouldn't have policies that are losing the sight of the box. We're, you know, we're, we're thinking so far out of the box, we actually lost sight of purpose. To directly answer your question, are we, how do we get out of excess meetings? I think as good leaders, we do certain things that make that leading succinct. If we come in, and, and this is just um, meeting 101, right? If you come in and, it's, and there's no formal agenda. There's no follow-ups. There's no accountability. And it's a discussion. It's a kumbaya. Then it's a 45-minute waste. But if it's if your meetings are calculated as a business, then I think there's a lot of value to it. I think it'll be interesting is if people start to actually capture the cost of these meetings in projects, right, which many already do. You'll start to see maybe, okay, we got too far. So sorry, little tooth. Little. Let me get here. My, my approach to the meeting-centric culture was my, we allowed our kids to drink at home. So all of our kids are older. They've all gone off to school. And at least two of them had this comment when they came back from school, they went to college and, and, and we like wine. We we're part of a wine club and that kind of stuff. So we drink good wine. And my kids <laughs> on several occasions said to me, said, I said, well, so drink a lot at, at school. They're like, no, the stuff's not that good. Your stuff's so much better. It's, and so what they did is they learned to appreciate good stuff so they went to that party. They were just like, I'm not going to get drunk just to get drunk. I want to drink, you know, good wine and good. And, and as they don't have that at college, that's not what the, the goal is. And part of the reason I share that story is to say, that's what we did with meetings. We said, all right, we're going to show everyone what good meetings look like. So after a while, they become discerning and they look at it and go, that wasn't a good meeting or that person doesn't put on good meetings. We need to do something to make those meetings better. Not that I was going to dictate, hey, this is the format for all the meetings moving forward, but I wanted people to be in good meetings that were short, crisp, got to the point, had the, the conversation that we needed to have around the topic. That They just became more discerning and they go, all right, this is what it looks like. And then eventually my team ended up developing the, the, a great framework. And it, it struck me when they came to me and said, we need to have more meetings. I was like, that's the opposite of what I want. They said, trust us. We know what we're doing. And then they laid it out for me. And they said, look, we're going to have meetings that look like this at this time and this time. And what you're going to see eventually happen is a whole bunch of these meetings are going to drop off. And they were exactly right. And they just went to those stand-up meetings, the lean stand-up meetings in the morning and at night. And I'm like, man, people aren't going to want to meet at morning and in the afternoon. And sure enough, they met less during the day because they were focused in the morning and they knew that they were going to have a follow-up in the afternoon. They didn't need to call another meeting. Because the, the primary people they were going to talk to were going to be there. And 
they just created a very efficient flow of meetings and a structure for meetings. Yeah. So I, sometimes it works. Yeah, I know you remind me one of when I would have meetings at the most recent hospital I was at, and they were my meetings, I would start off by saying, This is the goal of this meeting. The first thing I would say is this is the goal of this meeting. Sometimes it could just be a weekly update of all the projects, and the goal would be right awareness and follow-ups, etc. And then at the end of the meeting, I always say, I would discuss, like recap, was the goal met or not? And it was interesting to see when my staff would would want to draw me into a meeting and either to get me to participate, they would start off in the email by saying, hey, Eli, can you join this in this meeting? This is the goal of the meeting. Or if I would participate in one of their meetings, they would automatically start off by saying, this is the goal of the meeting. And at the end, they would come back and say, was the goal met? And it's a change of, th- of thought around that. But it, you know, when they saw me doing it, they started doing it as well. And then you have accountability at both ends of it. The craziest meeting I ever called was a cadence meeting. We called it the project cadence meeting. And we had every project present to the uh, VP and above within the IT department. So the project manager came in and any key owner would come in and present. And we gave them four slides, present four slides. You know how hard that is for, we had a hundred, at the time, I think like a hundred and something to 115, 120 projects. And you say, hey, use these four slides. You would think we'd ask people to solve world hunger because they're like, oh, I can't tell you about my projects in four slides. I'm like, I, you can't tell me about it in 20 slides. So you might as well just make it succinct to four slides. That the first time we did that meeting, we set aside four hours and my team was like, ah, oh, don't do this. This is crazy. And, uh, and I said, oh, look, the goal for this is I'm tired of being the intermediary. I know what's going on in all 110 projects because people come to the CIO, but you guys don't know what's going on in each other's projects. And I can't tell you the number of times there's so many dependencies that you guys just don't know about. And so we did that first cadence meeting and we set aside four hours, ended up taking six hours. And when we were done, I'm like, okay, was that worth it? And they were like, oh, absolutely. It's amazing how many things that came up. And then that meeting got much more crisp, much shorter. People understood what it meant to do a four slide presentation on a project and what we were looking for, what we were after, what are the dependencies? What does leadership need to know? What's going to cause this project to fail? These were the important things. But sometimes you need to have the six-hour meeting in order to get everybody on the same page to eliminate some of those things. I'm sorry, I'm pontificating. Let's get to the news. You you want to talk about the news? Sure. I was just going to say one last thing. I don't know if it's a half joke or half truth, but they say, if you're about to send a colleague an email, pick up the phone. If you're about to call your colleague, meet the the guy in person. And if you're about to meet the guy in person, do the work. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's good. All right. That gets us off. All we've done is the back and forth intro for you and I. Let's get to the news. All right. So this is, let's see, where does this come from? This is modern healthcare, which means it's behind a paywall. I happen to pay for that paywall because I appreciate a lot of the the stuff they do. But since it's behind the paywall, I'll do a little more reading than usual. And this is, they have a forecast. Care is moving out of the hospitals over the next decade. All right. So let me give you some of the context. Health systems might want to hold off on expanding inpatient services during the next decade and move more investments to ambulatory surgical centers and outpatient settings. And as you and I both know, there's, I'm talking to hospitals, you're talking to hospitals, they're still building towers. So uh, that work is still underway. That's according to a new national report out that predicts that where care will be delivered over the next decade, inpatient discharge volumes overall will decline by 1% by 2029, while outpatient volumes will increase by 19%. And ambulatory surgical centers will see a growth of 25% over that same time period. The report from market analysts and insight company SG2 adds to a growing collection of data showing that there will be lower acuity care delivered 
and it will be delivered outside the hospital walls. All right, let me give you a couple more things. So that's the general context. That's the study. That's what's going on. The move away from inpatient care is being driven by a few factors. There are more innovations in medical technology that allows for less invasive procedures and therefore less of a need for all the bells and whistles of hospital that a hospital provides. There's also been considerable growth in ambulatory surgery centers, partly due to financial backing from private equity firms. The shift will accelerate as CMS eventually allows all previously inpatient-only procedures to be done in other settings and expands upon the things ASCs can do by the end of 2023. And then it goes on to talk about the growth in physician offices and what's going to go on there. And, and they talk about the, the gaps in the continuum of care. And other findings include that emergency department volume will increase by 5%. Urgent visits will decline by 15%. In the ED, behavioral health visits will increase. And in addition, skilled nursing facility volumes will decrease by 5% by 2029, and home care will increase by 15%. So I'm trying to figure out if I want to give you an open-ended question or a more specific question. The, the specific question would be, what does this mean for our building project? The general question would mean, would probably be, do you agree with this? Are we seeing this? Are we going to see this move to the home? Let's start with the general question. Absolutely. Number one is, the answer is absolutely yes. My my most recent CIO job at Brookdale Hospital, we actually were merged with two other hospitals, public knowledge, with Kingsbrook and Interfaith. And the idea was, this was actually announced a few weeks ago formally, was to actually move all inpatient services out of one of those hospitals. So I, I was there. I lived through the whole strategy component of that. Before that, I was with the hospital system, 11 hospitals that came together. Hospitals are either merging and inpatient, and they're collecting or combining inpatient services. And many hospitals are actually closing down or filing for bankruptcy because they can't, they, their whole model was based on things that are no longer necessary. And don't, don't call me the exact numbers, but I believe in just 2021 20, to date, being that it's in June, seven hospitals already closed this year, 21 last year. I think it was almost 50 the year before. And you know, going back to 2018, it was 20 plus or something like that. So we see hospital closures happening across the board. It's not because people are getting healthier necessarily. I would love to believe that. And maybe that's a big part of it, but it's because they were previously designed for inpatient services. And as you mentioned, there's a steadily, steady decrease in patient services, which means excess inpatient capacity. If you staff a hospital, you don't change your staffing models. You don't change you know, the services you provide. You're running hospitals at a deficit. It's no different than air, airlines. You know, if, if people were starting to whatever reason travel in business class, first class, and most of your plane remains coach class, you're going to be flying with empty seats and it's just cost prohibitive. So the number one is absolutely there's a decline in, I wouldn't say in the need necessarily for inpatient services, but there's a de- definitely a decline in inpatient services in a hospital setting, in an in acute care setting. That's my larger answer. Yeah, and, and we've seen this. I, I played golf with a guy this week who had his hip replaced three weeks ago. And I scratched my head. I'm like, I remember my mom going through this and it took a long time. First of all, that he had a little incision, barely even noticeable. And they went in there and did all the work and that kind of stuff. And he showed me the, the x-ray and he did his bionic man, which everyone likes to talk about. And then he, he talked about, he was on a cane for a week. He was walking after the first week. He was hitting with a seven iron within two and a half weeks. 
And now he's out playing 18 holes of golf at, you know, at the three week mark. I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that's happening. And that's, that's just one procedure. We know that's happening across the board. We're getting better. We're getting better at getting people out of the hospital and in healthier state than we used to after long uh, periods of stays and those kind of things. So the, the acuity level in the hospital is going to go up and we need those things, but there's going to be less stays in the hospital and less need for, for those services. So what does this mean for uh, building projects? How should we be thinking about building projects? We still need towers, right? We just had COVID. If any case could be made for, we need beds for certain periods of time in, in our history. The case has just been made that beds are important in the communities unless we can do COVID care out of the home. But at this point, it's, it's still in the hospital setting. That was a very, it's a high acuity situation, clearly with the hundreds of millions of deaths that we've seen, or hundreds of thousands of deaths in the U.S. that we saw. You have the need for high acuity care and the need for those beds. But what does this mean? How do we approach this? Let's first of all, from a healthcare standpoint, and then I want to take you in the technology route around this. I want to come at it from two angles. Number one is the hospital will continue to exist. So what should that look like? If, if we're going to build new towers and we're going to build hospitals, what, how do we prepare for that? What, you know, what are we building for five years? And then the second thing is why and what is now happening outside of the hospital? And to your, well, first of all, why would someone not want to go to a hospital? For many reasons. Number one is you can get sicker in a hospital, right? You can go in for hip replacement, catch something in a hospital. Someone has a different type of a health issue that it's an airborne pathogen or whatever that might look like. You went in for a procedure. Why would you go into a place where you're exposed to greater risk than you need to? So we always want to have the lowest you know, risk where we're, we're being cared for. The argument wouldn't be like, why not be cared for in a hospital? The argument should be, why do you need to be cared for a hospital? And one of the things we saw with COVID was we turned those hospital rooms into things that they weren't. People were, it was, we were challenged. We didn't have enough rooms. We had rooms designed for other things and we quickly flipped them around and made them as best as we could to treat COVID patients. So what we, you know, one of the big lessons from COVID is we have to be a little bit more flexible in our design around what the future hospital room looks. We can't have a hospital room that's only for airborne diseases. We have to have them a little bit more modular or flexible, whatever that right word is. Obviously, there's a higher cost for care in a hospital, right? So we try to look for lower costs and payers are are very well aware of that, right? They're not going to pay for a procedure at at an emergency department rate or an acute care rate if they know that other hospitals are doing that at a lower cost setting. Everybody's woken up to this. This is not really today's news. There's no, the, it's almost by exception as opposed to by the rule that you're being cared for in the hospital. So there will still be a need. There's still an investment of talent and technology that only makes sense in a hospital. There can't be that unique specialist in every ambulatory care, even if it's possible to provide the service. So I believe that for a very forever, there will still be some kind of a hospital existing, but they're being complemented by so many other care settings that are more appropriate. I'm thinking about, I, I want to go down the technology route, but I'm also thinking of all the service line work that we did. We probably will see more hospitals close and more uh, systems acquire other hospitals. But because one of the things we did in the, the in our largest market which was a you know three million dollar or three million person market. It was a pretty large market in uh, Southern California. So we did a lot of service line work, and we stopped doing certain procedures in certain hospitals. And yes, people had to drive a little further, but the level of care we were able to provide at the remaining 
hospital. We typically looked at it and said, hey, we need to have a certain level of oncology in every market, but we had specialty oncology for the entire market, the entire region at one hospital, or we had orthopedics at one hospital, or we had those kind of things. And, and, and that gave us the benefits of scale, which don't exist in a lot of things. And so that's the risk. It don't exist in a lot of markets because you have orthopedics across the street from another orthopedics across the street from another orthopedics, as is the case in New York City. So people have a lot of choices. And so if you're not at scale, you continue to, to struggle financially because those are very capital intensive types of operations. Let's talk technology. They talk about ambulatory surgery centers. They talk about outpatient services. They talk about a growth in in office visits. And I assume, I didn't see it here, but I assume a growth in telehealth visits and whatnot. If I make you the CIO for a health system today, what are we looking at in terms of a strategy to ensure that we're ready for this dispersion of patients from a central campus model to really being seen all over, including in their home? First of all, the CIO um, responsibility five, 10 years ago, even maybe even more recent, was really just focusing on care in the brick and mortar building. If a clinic, a clinic was, it was a pretty simple setup. They needed access to our EHR, they needed access to our technology systems, but we really didn't think about what is the technology footprint look like in the clinic? What does the technology footprint look like in a patient's home? What does technology look, footprint look like in a post-acute care as much? We always needed that to an extent, but not as much as we do recently. It was always focused on our ORs, our ED, our patient inpatient rooms, and our waiting rooms, our administrative offices, all about that. Today's CIO can't think anymore only about the technology in the hospital. And they have to really quickly learn about technology in those other settings. What's the appropriate mix for today? This will continuously change. I know, Bill, about our patient room next concept, and I do want to talk about that for a moment. We don't call it patient room of the future, because that'll continuously change. It's more about just being able to see around the corner and being a little bit ahead. So CIOs today have to take into consideration, number one is, like, like we talked about, what is the technology investment in the hospital? That doesn't change. And it's a little bit different because A, it's not what it was, but B, is also it's not what it is. It's what it will be. So you have to think about those new towers. What am I building for? That'll still be still make sense financially in five years from now. But they also have to include in their strategy all the other technology components. And whether or not we're talking about technology on a patient's wrist, at a minimum, they have to create the backbone and the, the infrastructure for that. Right? When they're planning for their core EHR, their core systems, they still have to, they have to plan for, you know, we're going to be taking in data from patients' wrists that's presented by them, not, by, not captured by us. So the, the responsibility of technology and what that includes in the whole portfolio has just blown up. It's not anymore what's in the physical building. It's interesting. When I think of moving to the home, ambulatory surgery centers and those kind of things, one of the first thing that strikes me is we used to have an old adage. It was a long time ago around security, which was physical access is access. You give me access to any server, physical access to any server, I can hack it. And I'm not even that good, but physical access is access. There's enough tools out there that you get there. So now I'm thinking, okay, Great. We've moved everything to the data center that physical access to the servers is is done. Physical access to the devices in the hospital, we secured that. So we have a security department. They make sure that the equipment is not tampered with and people aren't coming in and out and doing things like that. Now we're starting to move into these remote locations 
and we don't have the same level of physical security. We might have cameras and those kind of things, and that's good and that's helpful. And then we move into the home. And I think, how do I ensure that I have a secure connection between home and my location? And I worry, I used to worry about people sitting in our lobby on our free Wi-Fi, getting on our network and trying to hack our, our routers and hubs and switches. And maybe that was just a CIO's paranoia. But now they could just sit in their home or somebody, some, somebody could sit outside their house, hack their router. They know that there's devices in there that are communicating straight back to our hospital and our devices. How are we going to ensure that stuff? That's the kind of stuff that I get. I hope smarter people than I are really working on to identify the traffic that's an anomaly, shutting down that traffic, identifying it quicker, identify it within seconds, closing it down within minutes so that we can keep hackers out. But that's That continues to be, as we continue to make this progress, and I think we need to make this progress in terms of delivering care in a lot of different settings, I, I worry, I, I continue to worry about the cybersecurity threat. So the first thing we do is we have one hour meetings, one hour status reports, one hour <laughs> of timesheets. <laughs> and then at the end of the day, we figure this out. Um, all serious, all kidding aside, though, I think we need to learn from other industries um, that have a leap on this. We trusted our banking. We've trusted our money to, to open access, not just money in the bank. We went to ATMs. We do bank from homes on our phones and on our laptops and what are all that, right? Nobody's figured out. And I, don't, and I think the challenge will forever exist. There's forget the saying, but it's security and comp- uh, security and convenience shall never meet. We get frustrated with the triple factor authentication and sliding puzzle pieces to make it match and all that kind of stuff to get in. So I think number one is we've forever trusted things that were important to us. And we need to, we, and in, in healthcare, we need to really align ourselves with that, maybe even be better than that. Th- those ways of securing what's important to us at a distance exists in other industries. And we, we need to really learn from that. Number one, and there was a number two, but I think that's, oh, the number two was as artificial intelligence continues to mature, that's something that's, that we're, that we're going to continue to take to our advantage. And you talked about behavioral trends. And you know, I get a phone call from my bank. If they know I've never, ever shopped on a Saturday morning because I sleep in late and now all of a sudden there's a charge on my credit card, I get identified. These are things that we need to, to start to do in healthcare and use Use behavior, use yeah. all the things that other industries are doing. Have you have you ever done that? Like you applied for a loan or something or whatever, and you get that text like within seconds now. It's unbelievable. Yep. Emails, texts. You, you, you log into your bank for the first time in three months and automatically they suspect it's not you or a different IP address. Or they match up the fact that you're logging in from Detroit, but your last credit card swipe was in Ohio. Like... These are things that will help us with healthcare as well. They already are, but they'll just continue to get better. I think that's how we extend the security wall or the security demark to patients' homes. It's no different. All right, let's hit on a couple topics real quick. Apple Worldwide Developer Conference, as he has stated a long time ago, Tim Cook said, if you zoom out into the future and look back and you ask the question, what was Apple's greatest contribution to mankind? He said it will be about health and they continue to make investments in this area. It's really interesting to, uh, to watch. So they now have this, they have a couple things. It The iPhone captures the way users walk. Now users can access their risk of falling with walking steadiness. And so the metric uses the built-in motion sensor to measure how fast and evenly you walk and those kind of things. So another way to use your phone as a device to help you live a healthier life. They're also adding to the context of their lab results, which is important. 
So now it will tell you that LDL cholesterol is bad or yeah, it's bad cholesterol and whether your cholesterol is within the expected range. So they give you also some historical charting in there as well. But I think that the biggest announcement that came out of here is Apple is now partnering with electronic health record companies, including Cerner and Meditech, to give users the ability to share their Apple health data directly with healthcare providers. Apple stressed that the data is shared privately and that not even Apple will have access to the information shared. Apple is also letting users share their health data with other individuals. A user may choose, for instance, to share their health data with their adult child. In this scenario, a user could see their parents' health data and receive notifications such as high heart rate alerts and change in mobility. The data is encrypted at, in transit and at rest, and users have granular control over which types of data to share and with whom. So data sharing... They have uh, updated way to look at labs and results, and they have the walking features. The data sharing one is interesting to me as Apple Health Records has a huge list of organizations that have signed up for it that are sharing portions of the health record through the through the iPhone. And this is the next move. So now not only do I get access to it, but I can share it with I could share it with another doctor. I could share it with another health system. I could share it with uh, my family and create a care circle. What What are your thoughts on the progress that they're making around Apple Health Records? First of all, I, I, we don't leave home without this, right? It's nearby. Essentially, when by I, the way, forty nine percent market share of Apple. Yep, Apple yeah. Apple iPhone has forty nine percent market share right now. Yeah, number one is essentially what this did for us is two things. It allowed us to walk around with an entire computer where we are. So all the things we're doing with this, we theoretically could do on a computer. And it also added IoT, right? Sensors and cameras, all that kind of stuff. Years ago, when people talk about wallaroos and computers on wheels, I said, if you can't fit it into a doctor's pocket, it's it, there's a there's a time, it's just not going to be relevant at some point. Nobody wants to be tethered. So there's a lot of advantages it brought. It brought, like you said, the ability to do things from a medical perspective for patients and contribute proxy, right? So that now you can do things in flight, a doctor, you can be family members can have access to information specifically to, to data sharing and to Apple or any others, the Androids having, I'm a big fan of data being available for the betterment of my health. Now, I love you had another podcast talking about who owns the medical record. The hospital does. I want it. I want to have ac- access to it because I want to, I want to be in control or be part of the decision-making around my own health. There are certain things, obviously, you don't, there's certain bad, there's certain information that you don't want to get into other people's hands and we have to be able to control that. But to the extent that I, as a consumer of, or, or someone who cares most about my own health, I need to have data available to me. And if this is my way of getting data, the quickest and, and the most easiest way to get my data, then it has to be available to me. So I'm a big proponent of whoever can be the fastest in this race, whether it's Apple or somebody else of making it so that it's across multiple EHRs, across multiple care settings, one record that follows me. And just like we have, it was an NYSE, right? I have one bank, but I can travel the world and get my money. I want to have one way of getting access to my entire health uh, record. Yeah. So in that podcast, this is one of my hot topics. I believe this is 
one of the most important topics in healthcare, patient-directed interoperability, I think will change healthcare over the next 10 years more than anything else that we're even talking about or, or thinking about. I think data has the opportunity to, to change so many things in terms of transparency, in terms of quality, in terms of engagement. So those are the things I'm looking at. And I'm a proponent of joint custody of the medical record. Okay, I, I acknowledge that the health system owns it. They created it. They own it. And that's a common misconception, but they do own it. And that's fine. I just want to have access to it because it has so much value to me as, a, as an individual. And I, I love this. I think this takes us in, in the right direction. I'm a little disappointed. And I reserve the right. Hopefully, Epic comes out next week and says, no, we support this. We're behind it 100%. But they were not mentioned from the stage, and they're not included in the press release. It talks about Cerner and Meditech. I would love to see Epic be a leader here. And I was a little harsh on them in my podcast because uh, I, I treat leaders differently. And Epic is the leader. Epic is the leader over Cerner and Meditech. They've done so many great things for healthcare. They've taken our, our failed EHR implementations and really addressed that significantly. They are an organization that listens very well to their user community. They do so many good things, quite frankly. Judy is so connected to more so than any CEO in the industry to their clients and uh, their advocates. Uh, for her, and they should be, because she has done, it's a, a joint relationship. But that's why I'm so disappointed, because they are a leader. They have an, an outsized, outsized voice on this topic, and they've chosen to really drag their heels on this. And I really wish they'd get out in front and say, we are open to this. We're not going to believe that we're the only ones that can build this walled garden. We're going to go ahead and partner with Apple and get this out there. And I, I recognize that a huge number of people on that list are uh, on the list of providers that are working with it are Epic clients today. But to be able to start to share that information and whatnot, they're just not on this list. And I'm, I'm curious why they're not there. I'm just a little disappointed on that. I'm not looking for a comment from you because I don't want to get anybody in trouble on this show. I just want to keep myself in trouble, not get anyone else in trouble. Let's talk about one last thing. Let's talk about employees. And we've been touching on this a fair amount, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. A couple of stories. Texas Children's Hospital is giving a 2% raise and uh, an extra week's vacation to all their frontline workers. And it's so important to take care of our staff. And that goes along with another story that I had pulled up and we're not going to get a chance to cover, but it's hybrid work, how to prepare for a turnover tsunami. And in that story, oddly enough, it says that 54% What's the numbers? 52% of North American workers plan to look for a new position in 2021, and 26% of workers plan to leave their employers after the pandemic. And I'm not sure that healthcare is uh, protected from that. I think that those numbers and those surveys that were done probably are indicative of healthcare is clearly what Texas Children's is, is, is doing is acknowledging a couple things. One is that exists, but also acknowledging the great work that people did during the pandemic. What are some other things that you've heard or that uh, we can do to make sure that we retain uh, our, our staff coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, thanks, Bill. And I had a, a boss one time used to tell us, when a recruiter calls one of your employees, if your employee picks up the phone and says, what do you, you let me hear? You've already lost that employee. You want to have that, you want your staff, if a recruiter calls your staff, you want them to send that call to voicemail. There's always, there's always going to be a better job for everybody, but an employee who's appreciated and an employee is, I should say, rather celebrated 
is an employee who's going to really think 25 times before they change to work at another organization. And, and as leaders, sadly, many times, um, leaders will, will try to pr- motivate employees based on what motivates them. If an employee, if a leader is motivated by financially, they'll just talk about raises that are coming. If a leader is motivated by work-life balance, they'll talk to their staff about how great the work-life balance is. I think as a leader, the first thing you have to know as a CIO or any other kind of leader is what motivates each individual employee. Some employees might love the fact that they can punch the clock at five o'clock and be home for dinner with their kids. Or maybe they have care issues for a parent or for a child and you need to work that into their commute. Or maybe they're growth-oriented. So I think the first thing is really take a step back and say, if employees are leaving, have I done a good enough job historically as a leader to know what, why, my, why my employees have been here? If, my, if, if employees leaving post-pandemic, they probably wanted to leave a year ago. They just now have a new opportunity that didn't exist a year ago. And in IT, we're seeing that. You needed, historically, you needed to be, if you wanted to work at a hospital, you need to be in that city. You need to be in that state, whether it was for tax reasons, for liability issues. With COVID, it all changed, right? People are, we were desperate. We said, okay, you work across the country. I need two more people. Boom, you're in. And that's just not just for IT, but that's for everybody else. So now all of a sudden, it's like the world's become a little flatter, even in our little industry here. I know personally many employees that many health IT people that are now taking jobs that are across state lines working out of their own home. You know, if I could work from home in my house for my own hospital three blocks away, I could work at home in my own house for a hospital that's three cities over, that's giving me a 10% pay increase. Or that's allowing me work from home where my own hospital says, no, you have to come back to work now. The pandemic is over. So I think it's really important to know all the time, pandemic, not pandemic, as technology gets smarter, what are the motivators for your employees so they don't pick up the phone or recruiter calls? That's number one. I think number two is that we have the ability, though, to do more for our staff that we didn't have in the past. It comes back to what you're saying before, way back in the beginning about the day. I love how the events you outlined from one of the comments, commentators about. Let's think about how we're modeling our day, how we're taking accountability for our own, for our team and for our performance. And let's use the tools that have all of a sudden become available to us to help our teams become more motivated and, and more more loyal, I should say. Wow, it, Eli, I love the love the advice. When we look at employees, it has to be an N of one. Everybody's an individual. Everybody has different drivers, and we have to take the time to get to know them. I've kept you up to the maximum amount of time that I have been allowed based on the unnamed calendaring program that we all use. <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, Eli, it's always great. It's great to catch up with you. Thanks, thanks for coming My on pleasure. the show. My pleasure as always, Bill. Uh, if you know someone that might benefit from our channel, please forward them a note. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, and whatever else comes out next week. You get the picture. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health leaders, VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, McAfee, and Aruba Networks. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.